Hey everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to My Sentiments Exactly. My name is Kay, and I'm your host. Today's special guest is Kevin Hoffman. Kevin, as an accomplished writer and public speaker, has appeared across the United States, sharing his experience in guiding parents, students, and professionals through today's multicultural landscape. His perspective and lighthearted yet contemplative view resonates with people of all cultures and is sought by many. Kevin has been interviewed by media, including Nightline ABC and NPR, and is quickly becoming a trusted voice on the topics of race and adoption. Kevin's layered racial resume has led him to write Growing Up Black in White, a compelling memoir revealing his difficulties and joys growing up in a diverse family, particularly during a time and in a location where acceptance was tentative and emotions regarding race ran high and hot. Because his story also addresses the impact of race and culture in society, it serves as a catalyst for open discussions on diversity and inclusion, as well as race and culture. Kevin has worked with several K-12 school districts, universities, and adoption agencies as a consultant in the area of cultural intelligence. Hope you enjoy today's episode. MSE Podcast is dedicated to talking about the hard stuff and facilitating the conversations necessary for growth, healing, transformation, and genuine community. Now it's your turn. My hope is that you finish this episode feeling empowered to continue the conversation with those around you. One way you can do that is by purchasing the MSE Podcast Conversation Starters Deck available at bygracenp.com. May these cards inspire you to speak out and be heard, and may you be authentically embraced for the uniqueness of your journey. Kevin, I'm so excited to have you on My Sentiments Exactly today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so I want us to really dive right into your journey growing up as a biracial child adopted by a white family in Detroit and in the 70s. <laughs> so if you could just, right. you know, start out just sharing your your journey um, and things that you've, you've learned along the way, that would be great. Yeah. So I was born two weeks after the riots in 1967 in Detroit. Wow. Uh, I was the result of an affair between a white woman and black man. They both worked together in one of the plants in the Detroit area. Um, and once my white mother's white husband found out that she was pregnant by a black man, he insisted that she give me up for adoption. So I was wow. immediately placed in foster care. Uh, spent three months in foster care, and then I was adopted by a white family. Uh, he was my dad. My adoptive father was a minister, mm. uh, and they have three biological children, all white. Um, my adoptive mother's white. Uh, moved in with them at three months old. To uh, They lived in Dearborn, a white suburb of Detroit. And when I was about 11 months old, we all woke up to a cross burning on our front yard. Oh my gosh, wow. That, 
Yeah, so that starts my story as this biracial kid living just yeah. on the out, just on the outside of you know one of the blackest cities in America in yeah. the late '60s. Um, and so that's where our story begins: is me living with this white family in a black city, um, and eventually the neighborhood that we were in that uh, burned a cross on our yard. We left that neighborhood when I was three, moved to Detroit, where we lived in a black neighborhood. Mm. So all my friends from, you know, pretty much ever since I can remember, you know, I always had children of color, you know, around me. And so mm. I identified with them. That became, you know, I often say, it's so important that kids find their tribe, find where they belong. Yeah. And immediately I found that with the black community. So. Although I'm biracial, I actually identify as black. Yeah. Uh, so growing and, up, um, if I can just ask, was it apparent from the beginning to you that, you know, I'm mixed work? Did you realize your racial identity? I mean, that was, that's the good and bad, which comes with transracial adoption. And transracial mm -hmm. adoption, primarily, it happens primarily white families adopting children of color. You have very few, you know, families of color adopting white kids. Um, so, yeah, I mean, immediately I knew I didn't fit in. I, mean, I didn't match my family. So I always knew I was adopted. Mm -hmm. um, that was never a secret. Okay, got you. So how was it? Because you know, you said you identified mostly with the black community. So when you were hanging out with your friends versus when you were home, was there a difference in? Um, I don't know. Just were there any differences that you saw? Oh yeah, I mean the cultures are totally different. So yeah, you know, I know. <laughs> of course, the cultures are different. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming that your your family was very encouraging of you embracing black. Uh, they, they gave me the opportunity to be in okay. connection okay. with kids that were like me. Okay. Um, we didn't really talk about it. Really? Yeah. So in my family, we didn't talk about it, but it was interesting because okay. my parents were very ahead of their time. So they were, before I came along, they were very involved in protesting racial mm -hmm. inequality. Okay. social injustice um but it was just part of our family dynamic and i think what they were waiting for is for me to bring it up and because oh, they didn't bring it up you didn't bring it up it sent yeah it sent the message to me this isn't something we should be talking about so we didn't so i had those conversations with my black friends okay um, gotcha and then later on we lived in the black neighborhood for five years at age eight. My dad gets a promotion. We moved two miles away, still in the city limits of Detroit, but now to an all white neighborhood. Mm, okay. And, uh, and so I still talk to him to this day. So I had a good friend who lived across the street from me, a uh, tall white kid. We became best friends and he and I would talk about, you know, kind of the, the inconsistencies between the races and then i would talk with my black friends about it as well mm -hmm. but not really at home 
Got you. Okay, that makes sense. So let's talk about this um, because I haven't really heard too much discussion surrounding transracial adoption. Um, I think I've heard mm -hmm. like one interview um, <laughs> on the topic. So I want to see what what would you say are the most common or even stereotypes that you feel are associated with transracial adoption? Uh, well, for the black adoptees, the adoptees of color, I think you kind of you're kind of caught in between two worlds in a sense. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate that my parents saw early on the need for me to be around kids that look like me. Yeah. And so I, I never had thoughts that a lot of transracial adoptees do, which are, man, I wish I was white. Man, I wish, wish I wasn't a person of color. Yeah. My thoughts weren't like that at all. I was very proud to be a part of this community. Mm -hmm. To the point where I actually felt bad for my brothers and sister wow. because they weren't black. Hmm. Because I thought that was really the team to be on. I really liked <laughs> that group. Got you. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I can definitely see how it could be as if you're caught between two worlds. Um, that's a very interesting perspective right there at the end. Um, how was it, you know, growing up with your, with your siblings, did you find it, were, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this, <laughs> um, did you ever feel like maybe you didn't belong? I, I know you said, you know, you're caught between two worlds, um, but was it difficult for you, like going home and, and not seeing anyone that looked like you know, really into advocacy and, and protesting um, just for you personally? Yes, yeah, so I was very comfortable being a child of color. Um, okay. And so I didn't, I didn't really ever question my racial identity. I okay. think what complicated things was everyone else was trying to. Oh, I mean, so okay. there were times where, yeah, in the black community, I would get you know comments like, "Well, he talks proper," which was code for he talks white. Exactly, was, I've heard yeah, that so many times. Just, yeah, and it was just a way for some in that community to say he's different, which that's what I didn't like. Okay. Um, Okay. And then, but I, I, but I knew early on, I was never going to pass as white. And so I gravitated to the black community and did what I had to do to fit in with that community. And part of that was, I just really had this desire to be a part of that community because I liked so much about black culture. Gotcha. Um, okay. And so, yeah, so it was, you know, my mom will say to this day, it was a struggle for our family because we had a real hard time finding a place where everyone could be, you know, kind of could exhale. I mean, in the black neighborhood, I was fine, but my brothers were terrorized because they were, you know, the different ones. Yeah. We moved to the white neighborhood, it was, the, it was the opposite. So I was the different one. And, you know, I was okay. accused of stealing. I was accused of, you know, keying somebody's car. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of this, dynamic that especially in Detroit Detroit's racial history is just interesting where yeah. it's black or white literally 
So we didn't have, and to this day, there aren't that many diverse neighborhoods in Detroit. It's either black or white or Got Hispanic. Gotcha. So you do a lot of, of advocating and speaking on inclusion and, you know, you're, you're breaking up. Get most of that. Oh, did it break up right there? Yeah. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll just start start that over. Um, so you do a lot of advocating on diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. So for those that just obviously it's important, but different people have different passions. So why is it so I, so I got everything with the question. It always cuts off at the question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you say that diversity and inclusion is so important? Because we're not going anywhere. <laughs> True. <laughs> so lately, lately it's been it's been an interesting topic with, you know, between people of color and white people where you know, it's obvious that there's an inequality in this country. And so it's interesting that what we're asking for is for police to stop killing us. And mm -hmm. then the response from the other side is, well, why don't you, what about black on black crime? What about, you know, they, it's almost as if we're asking that we create this environment where we're safe. Mm -hmm. What we're being told is, well, we'll give you that if you give us one thing. Got you. And that is really that is not sitting well with me lately, <laughs> quite honestly. So, um, yeah, you'll see it in the Confederate statues or anything where, okay, we'll get the police to stop killing you, but we want to hold on to these racist images that yeah. we hold here. Um, yeah. And so I think it's important for others to understand the other side of it. In, in how we see things. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm trying to create, when I go into schools, the biggest challenge is how do you create this environment where the kids with the Black Lives Matter t-shirts and the kids with the Make America Great Again hats can coexist? Gosh. That's not easy. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely complicated. Um, and I, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly with, with what you said, we're not gonna get anywhere. And we haven't gotten really out there, you know, because of the lack of diversity um, and genuine diversity, not just um, what's portrayed. Because you'll right. see a lot of businesses and um, just institutions that may have um, diversified photos, <laughs> yeah. you know, or, or even in employees, but that doesn't necessarily mean that diversity and inclusion there is genuine. Right, right, that's interesting. I was just talking to a group about, you know, when I go into schools and I was telling the school, understand we look at everything. Mm -hmm. So we'll go into a school, we'll look at the trophy case and see the pictures and yeah. see where we are in the pictures. Cause that means that makes a difference. It does. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was working with a school not too long ago and 
you know, I was talking to one of the black parents and she said, come here, I want to take you to the trophy case. And she takes him to the trophy case and she says, so look at the pictures of the basketball teams in this trophy case. Mm. She's like, well, what do you see? And I saw exactly what she was saying. Anytime there were children of color in these pictures, they were either out of, put out of the way or in the back of the pictures. Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's just, it's come to the point now where, yeah, organizations, schools, you got to start listening to people who are different than you because we look at things and see things differently. Exactly. And if you're really committed to diversity, that means you got to look at that stuff and change it. Exactly. Yeah. That makes, that makes a big deal. I've, I've seen so much of that and a lot of it is unfolding now because you can have but in reality you may not be treating them the way that they should be treated and so at that point it goes beyond meeting the quota <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 and so yeah one of my biggest messages into schools and organizations is you know we've got to create this safe space for everybody so exactly so there's yeah. a there's a speech I give and it's called give me three feet and it's about the fact that we can allow each other that three feet around us to be who we want to be, yeah. believe what we want to believe. And really my three feet has nothing to do with your three feet. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. That's a really, that's, that's a really neat analogy. And I believe it's, it really starts with the children. You know, a lot of times we aren't having these conversations, um, you know, as, as children are being, you know, taught on it. And then when you get older, now you're presented with this harsh reality um, that maybe you did experience as a child, but you didn't really understand it. And there was no one to actually talk about it. So I'm really glad that you- Right, right. And that you- And talking about it. Right, so you see that a lot in schools. And so when I go into schools, one of the things we'll do is we'll pull those that identify as minorities mm -hmm. and we'll pull them out and have focus groups with them or those that have an interest in diversity and we ask them so what's it like you know going through life in this school district as a person of color a, you know a person from the lbgt community and the kids are very open and honest and we'll share what they may not share with their teachers. Exactly. And mm -hmm. so what we get is, yeah, I mean, quite honestly, what's going on in the halls of the schools that I've been to is far worse than when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah. The kids have found this safe space, usually in between classes in the halls, where there's aren't a lot of, where there's not a lot of inter teacher interaction. And so yeah. they say and do some horrible things to, you know the smaller groups yeah yeah and it's like you know kids don't see color they do <laughs> yes, they, and they yeah they are very and that's the thing is so we downplay it and say well kids no they don't know what they're saying they don't know what they're doing yeah there there's studies out there that will show you that yeah racial name calling typically starts between six and eight years mm -hmm. old and it's done with the express purpose to hurt. Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, and it's 
and growing up, that was like the atom bomb. If you could call, you know, a black kid a nigger, then there's no response to that. Mm -hmm. And kids know that. And so to discount it and say, oh, no, they didn't know what they were talking about. Oh, yeah, they did. Yes, they do. They hear the talk about that word. Yeah. They understand fully. Exactly. They do it to keep people in their place. They do it for a number of reasons. Um, and so, yeah, and so that's part of the challenge is going into schools and sharing with them how kids develop, especially when it comes to race. So yeah, by seven or eight, they're calling each other horrible terms. Um, and then we as adults, we don't even want to touch race till they're eight or 10. Exactly, exactly. But studies will show you that by seven or eight, kids ideas of race are pretty much set so then we hit them two years after and it's you might as well not at that point because their minds have been made up on the topics of race exactly yeah so i think that the work you're doing is is amazing to really have those discussions even if they're not open to talking to their teachers or maybe even at home opening up that space is so important, especially with everything going on. You can't wait until they get older to have these conversations. And it's difficult no, no. You have to learn how to. Yes, because there's a lot of kids being hurt. <laughs> yeah, when you don't think it's out there. I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's very evident out there today. Yeah, ab absolutely. So I wanted to ask, what is something that you would advise or tell um, transracial adoptees based on your experience? Uh, you know, find where you fit in. I was so fortunate that my parents, you know, in, the, in 1970 understood, I think they understood two things. Two, we don't know how to raise a child of color, so we need help. So they went to, a, to they put me in touch with my community. And that way I got to learn black culture and now I can move in that environment comfortably. I see so many transracial adoptees whose parents don't understand that and kind of think, well, love will conquer all. We'll just love this child. And that can create a very lonely existence for a child to be, you know, one of very few in an environment. People discount that as, oh, they, they're used to it because they don't say anything, but that is very uncomfortable. Yeah. Because you don't feel like you have a voice. And then, you know, it was interesting when we go into schools and we talk to, you know, these kids of color and we say, what's it like to be in this district? What, what's going on? And it's, and so what they'll, they'll tell us what it's like and then immediately dismiss it. And what I mean by that is they will say, well, yeah, my friends call me the N-word all the time, which is horrible, and it, there should be a period after that. Yeah. But then what they say is, but they don't really mean it. And oh. so in one sentence, that child has shared something with you that's horrible and that something should be done about it, but they've gotten to the point where they understand, I've got to straighten this in my head so that I can just go about my day. Uh -huh. And so how they do that is just by dismissing it almost immediately by saying, yeah, it's not that bad though. Yeah. Because the, I, my interpretation is 
because they understand not much is going to be done about it. This is where I am and I've got to find a way to deal with this. Uh When we've got a task that to the adults and the adults have to create a better environment for all kids. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you feel that your experience has affected you as an adult now? Um, it's given me the ability to talk to both sides. Okay. I love that. Honestly, uh, and I used to, it's interesting. So when you do diversity work, um, I, I used to do it with the best friend that I talked about, the tall, skinny, white kid that lived across the street from me. I've known him for over 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and I used to do diversity training together. And it was so interesting how... There were times where we'd be in a meeting and I would say something and I would get pushback on it. Uh And then my white friend, Mike, would say the same thing and they'd go, oh, okay. I thought, wow, that is so interesting. And we knew that. And so there were times when we would have, when we would get together to form what we were going to do at these schools, I would have to say, okay, Mike, I can't say this to this predominantly white crowd but it needs to be said and you're the one who's going to have to say it. Yeah. They, they won't hear it from me. Um, my background gives me some leeway for some reason. It plays better that I was raised by white people. That makes some feel more comfortable. Um, I think there's this big fear in corporate America or wherever we go that when we do diversity training, what's going to happen is this person of color is going to come in and call all the white people a racist. <laughs> <laughs> and so they get, so it's very hard for them sometimes to hear what I have to say. So it was an advantage to have Mike there because he could say that, you know, he could say. You could say it and get away with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, yeah, exactly. Got you. So I want to talk about your, your memoir. Um, growing up black and white. Can you tell us about that and just anything you want to share about the the writing process and just how you have seen it impact those that have been able to read it? Yes, so initially that book was written, like they say, whenever you write a book, picture who you're writing to. And so who I was writing to was that white transracial mom who had adopted a child of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my wife, and I should have listened to her Initially, my wife told me, I think your story is for a broader audience, not just the adoption community. Gotcha. Um, And so, yeah, 10 years in, I finally listened. And really, so when I decided, okay, maybe this book could be used to start a broader conversation on race. Mm -hmm. And I will say that when I wrote the book, one of the biggest biggest challenges that I had, but I knew I had to address it was, how do I write a book about race that white people will read? Gotcha. And so the book, so I went about writing the book in a way that it just tells stories. It tells stories about me and my white friend growing up or me and my black friends and what all we got into. Um, And so there's just kind of these crazy funny stories But weaved into those stories, I think, are deeper lessons about race. And, you know, I thought I was writing this book to help families like mine. 
But what I finally understood was the biggest push behind writing this book was because simply as a person of color in this country, I wanted someone to hear what it was like to walk through this country in my skin. And so yeah. that is why, that is a large reason why I wrote the book. Um, I wanted people to hear my experience because so much about race and racism is I share with you my experience and because it's not your experience, you then dismiss my experience as not valid. Mm -hmm. And man, we got to do so much better at that. And I think finally, after decades, I mean, understand, I was born into an environment that we're living through now. Yeah. Back in the late 60s, I was born two weeks after the riots in Detroit. Oh. And man, it just seems like it's Groundhog's Day. We're going through the same thing we did 53 years ago. Yeah. Um, which is so frustrating. I will say, and this is what gives me hope and keeps me going, is I am now seeing responses to George Floyd and police brutality in ways that I've never seen before. I have never seen a police chief come out and denounce his police officers or a mayor come out and denounce yeah. his police department. I think... And it, it, man, it took that horrible death, that horrible eight minutes and 46 seconds where they pinned George Floyd down. Mm -hmm. It took that for everyone to finally go, man, maybe these black people got something here. Maybe, yeah. they're, not, maybe they're not lying. Exactly. And then the police just keep proving our point because it seems like daily somebody else comes up beaten or killed pretty much in the same light. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that makes me want to ask as well, because um, I know there is what people like to call the Black experience. <laughs> but then there's also um, differences between growing up as a Black female and growing up as a Black male. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the differences that you have experienced um, as a mixed, but you do identify as Black male? Well, I think we have done a horrible job and missed the boat on the atrocities that have been acted out between or against Black girls and women. Mm -hmm. um, the whole R. Kelly case is a good example of that. Very. We have known R. Kelly for decades. Mm -hmm. And he, I, I honestly think he understood the system and knew that he could take advantage of black girls because no one was going to follow up on that. Exactly. And we've shown it. We knew about Jocelyn. We knew about Ariel. We knew about all these women. Mm -hmm. And as a society, we chose to do nothing. Nothing. Absolutely. And I think that is a perfect example of, like, when I go and train, sometimes mm -hmm. people will kind of push back on, that this is an unequal system. Yep. And this is a great example. So then I will ask them, so name for me a black child that has been abducted and you can't. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say, so name a white child that, that's been abducted. And you can go through Elizabeth Smart, John JonBenet Ramsey, mm -hmm. uh, 
the Holloway girl when she was on vacation. I mean, you can go. <laughs> White girls get a whole lot of attention when we're talking about abduction. Absolutely. And so then you wonder, dang, are they not taking black kids? Yeah, they are. <laughs> but I think people, and again, I think R. Kelly understood this, and I think some that, that brutalized people understand that, yeah, it's an easier road to go. I can take this person from this community, and I won't get much pushback on it. Exactly. And we see that, and that's a, that's a good, good way to show the inequalities in society, that we value Black women in this country very little. Absolutely. And y'all are still doing amazing things, which <laughs> shows you something, too. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, I think the biggest difference is we've concentrated so much on the treatment of Black boys and Black men, and we've missed the boat on just what's going on with Black girls and women. Yeah, I love that so much because it's, it's, it's true. Yeah. It's really true. And, I mean, you've seen just the different tragedies that have happened with black women um, yeah. recently. And before, I mean, I mean, even now their names are still getting lost. Um, but before that, I mean, you wouldn't really hear anything about it. It might be in the news if that, <laughs> um, yeah. and then just kind of brush, brush to the side. So I do appreciate you, you sharing that. I, I agree with it wholeheartedly. Yeah, and there's, I mean, they're, start, they're finally starting to do studies on it. And there's this mm -hmm. interesting phenomenon around Black women and how they're seen and how they're treated. And it's called the adultification of Black girls. Mm -hmm. And it's basically what you're, again, what you're seeing with R. Kelly. So these women come out and say, yes, this adult yeah. took advantage of me when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And what you've seen is people saying, no, she just did it for money. She knew exactly what she was doing. Really? A 14-year-old kid versus a 30-year-old, and you're siding with the 30-year-old? Yeah. At the time. <laughs> um, yeah, I think. With evidence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With overwhelming evidence. <laughs> you had video. It should have been done. Yeah. Yeah, I was, my husband and I were watching the documentary, couldn't even finish. It was so, it was so disheartening, disappointing, disgusting, just all, all of the above. I couldn't even, my husband couldn't, even, we couldn't even finish it. Um, and we have a daughter who's one. And I mean, like you said, most of the emphasis is placed on black boys. Um, but I've also just been looking into what it's like raising a black girl um mm -hmm. you know I'm, I'm a black woman but i'm not sure if there were any things that my parents had to fear about um raising raising a black girl um so i mean that's that's just been interesting but even just with that documentary and uh you're already protective over your children but it just makes you it makes you fearful um just, no matter if you're a boy or a girl Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And and just knowing that it's, it's possible, whether that is sexual abuse or even gun violence, it's not just gender specific. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it can happen to anyone. Um, yeah. Yeah. No matter what your race is either, but most of the time, if it does happen to a black person, 
the media will limit what it, it shares or maybe paint a picture that wasn't how it really was. Yeah, which is, I mean, you can, anytime a person of color is killed by the police, the way that that is addressed, mm -hmm. I'm hoping that it's changed, but the way that it is addressed has always been the same. Yep. So then everyone goes to dig into this person, whoever was killed, their background, to mm -hmm. justify why they were killed. Yeah. You, you see it with George Floyd, and you see even worse with George Floyd, because now people are filling in information that isn't there. I saw a video yesterday, and some guy wanted to say that George Floyd had assaulted a pregnant woman and beat her, and I'm just like, a pregnant white woman, and I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, and it was just it's just a way for them to justify why he was killed. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Yes. Dylan Roof, the white guy that went into that black church and killed nine people, and we knew he killed them. Yeah. Got escorted out of that church, taken to the Burger King to get a hamburger. Yeah. And I I don't think that would have ended the same way. Oh I'm pretty no. sure it wouldn't end it the same way if that was a black man. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm hoping there are a lot of changes that will that will take place too, because now it's beyond just talking about it. We need action. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, protesting is is good, and raising awareness is good, but we need policies to change. We need literal change to happen, not just changing language and and verbal communication. Right. And so now. I just started doing this the other day because all this has come out and I get a lot of white people asking me, well, what we, can we do to help? And initially I was like, well, we need to see you. We need to see you at the protest. We need your support that way. But now I'm like, well, how about you go home, research the issues, and then vote for the people who are more sympathetic to our community. Uh -huh. So go research whoever it is in your government that supports prison reform or, you know, immigration or something and then vote for that person. And I think that's when you're going to get the change. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's that's very helpful. Are there any other things that you would recommend for those that may be asking, particularly from the white community? Um, or just non-black communities in, in general um, on how they can help beyond just saying, I stand with you? Um, well, it means show up. So what you get a lot is, well, I just don't know what to say. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so my solution to that is just show up and understand that you don't always have to say anything. <laughs> like sometimes when people are, and understand it, when members of our community are killed in these horrible ways, it is like a family member has died. Yeah. And so understand that and come into that environment with some compassion, but then also understand we need you to support us and stand by us, but that may not mean you get to lead or that may mean you don't get to speak. Yeah. And that's not always easy for some people because they're used to being in charge. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if sometimes being an ally means I just need you to stand beside me, yeah. not in front of me running things. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. Coach white people that, yeah, understand your role may be different in this fight. We still need you. Um, yeah, we needed them, you know, in the 60s when, you know, it seemed like, you know, the world was imploding and the civil rights movement was going through the nation. I mean, we needed the numbers. We needed help from the white community. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I appreciate this discussion and I hope that it helps those that are listening um, just to hear about your journey with, you know, we've gone from adoption to just talking about race in general, which is the thing, the two main things that you focus on in your advocacy and the things that you do. Um, I really appreciate this discussion. Thank you so much. And um, where can people stay connected with you and, you know, stand beside you and in the advocacy that you're doing and hopefully be able to help in whatever way that they can? Yeah, so they can find me. Uh, if you just go to my website, which is the name of the book, Growing Up Black in white.com you can also get to the website by just putting in my name kevinhoffman.com and it's h-o-f is in frank m-a-n-n so it's kevinhoffman.com um, there's videos on there there's some t-shirt diversity shirts that uh, i make uh, you'll see videos of me you'll, you can buy the book there the book's available on amazon kendall and audible okay. um, yeah, so it's all over. All right, and I'll have those links in the in the episode description. Thank you again, Kevin, for coming on and sharing your insight and continuing to raise awareness. You are doing an incredible job, especially working in the schools and making it known there. So thank you for your service, everything that you do, and thank you for being a part of the show. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to everyone for tuning in and make sure that you connect with Kevin on social media. Did you enjoy this episode? I'd love for you to continue the conversation with those around you. One way you can do that is by purchasing the MSE Podcast Conversation Starter Stick, available at bygracenp.com. Be sure to leave a review on one of MSE's listening platforms, share with a friend, and join the My Sentiments Exactly podcast community on social media at MSE Podcast. The podcast is available for listening on all major streaming platforms, bygracenp.com, and on my mobile app. Hope to hear from you soon.